Good evening, everybody. We are here with our Q&A, the last one for the month of August. Next time we are here, it will be September, ninth month. We just thank God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Today we do not have that many questions. I don't know. I think the mail all didn't come through. But what we have, we will answer. We continue to thank everyone who keeps sending these questions. Such a blessing for us and all those who also hear. So this evening, before we start, we'll ask the Lord to bless us. Father, this evening we come to you, Lord. We pray, Father, for unction, Lord, from above, anointing from above. For Father, you alone have the true answers. Absolutely right. It's only when you speak. We need wisdom from above. Discernment from above. We need your help. That we are true to what you think about every subject. Our opinions don't count. Only the truth does. Yes. God, you are the truth. Your word is the truth. Spirit of truth, help us today once again. Once again, I come with the whole church into thy hands, O Lord. Be with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Yes, Pastor Vita. Pastor, there's a lot of, at least a couple of questions on how to deal with anger. I, I call them angry questions. Angry questions, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, f- the first anger. question um, mm-hmm. says, what did Jesus mean? Be angry and do not sin. I'm very angry. Very okay. honest um, okay. uh, admission. Okay. That's and question number one. one and uh, the other one is uh, really similar to that. It says, question number two, uh, when you are when you are really angry, how do you react? Let me know, please. Chandana, is, it's not showing on the screen at all. Okay. Is it? Yeah. Is it okay to have righteous anger? Like I want to finish them off now. Then you cool yourself down and you say to yourself, "I'm thinking and talking like a foolish man." How so? How do you deal with? Anger. anger and what does Jesus mean when okay. he says in the first place Jesus didn't directly say that but he said it through his apostle Paul in the letter to the church in Ephesians okay be angry but do not sin why did he say uh, if anger is wrong he would say do not be angry but that's not what he actually says he says be angry but do not sin so the question is is anger legit Anger is not legit. Why does God say be angry in the first place? Why does he say be angry? Because the anger that we have in is also part of God's nature, the image in which God created. Mm. Okay, So unless we look at God's anger, we cannot look at our anger. Because for everything, we need to look at what is true and what is false. So when God says be angry and do not sin, we need to look at... Look at um, how does God, what does God mean? Or when is God angry? So, um, I want uh, us to turn first uh, to Proverbs chapter, uh, sorry, Psalm 7 and verse 11. God is angry with the wicked every day. Okay. Psalm 7 verse 11. Because we need to differentiate between the anger of God and the anger of man. 
yeah it's coming in telugu it's coming in telugu just change it but okay once we get the anger of god right then only we will be able to judge whether our anger is right or misplaced we always need to look at what is true before we can identify what is false god is a just judge and god is angry with the wicked every day so you need to realize to be angry at wickedness to be angry with the wicked is not a wrong thing because god is angry with the wicked every day if you look at the context of this psalm it is it's used uh, the if you look at the heading before the psalm it is given as kush the benjaminite so theologians say that kush is actually king saul so let's go to verses 1 to 5 <clears throat> we will look at how god looks because once we get a picture hang of it because it's a very important thing because sometimes people feel uh, to be angry itself is wrong yes yeah can i have 7 7 verses 1 on 1 1 onwards 7 verses 1 onwards O Lord my God in you I put my trust save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me lest they tear me like a lion rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver is david speaking okay next verse go down O Lord my God if i have done this <clears throat> if there is iniquity in my hands hmm. if i have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me or have plundered my enemy without cause yeah verse 5 let the enemy pursue me and overtake me yes let him let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust so he is first giving the context he says if i am wrong if i am wrong then i i i give him the right to deal with me mm. but if i am not right if i am not wrong so first we have to look at the context basically david is talking about i believe about saul he says mm. if i have been wrong if i have wrong saul in any way then let his anger let him be just in the way he deals with me yes. arise what he says i am not arise the lord in your anger you have to rise the lord in your anger lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded <clears throat> if you go to words 12 how does he put across okay when god he's asking god would you rise up against my enemies if he does not turn back this is the first thing if you remember when we pray every day that's monday wednesday and friday when we pray we always use lot if they don't repent, repent. Mm. let them perish Okay, this is what David is also saying. If he does not turn back, what is turning back? He's out. I have never harmed him. I don't do him harm. He's after me. He's after my life. He's always trying to cause me harm. So, Lord, arise in your anger. But when you arise in your anger to judge him, when do you judge him? If he does not turn back, in spite of God's warning, so whichever way he does, he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He will. He bends his bow. and makes it ready he says if that person does not does not turn back okay god is rising god will ultimately destroy the wicked if you come to verse 15 and 16 this is what he says 15 and 16 he made a pit and dug it out 
and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head and his violent dealing shall come upon his own crown. This is what he is saying. This is how it happens. Okay, He says, you know what God will do? He says, God will judge him ultimately. In his anger, God will not leave the wicked alone. Ultimately, and we know the cases in the Bible. We see we see uh, Pharaoh being swallowed up by God. The entire Egyptian nation's strength is destroyed in one day in the Red Sea. The best example would be Haman. You know, he was after Mordecai. He was after Mordecai. And he had literally built the gallows for Mordecai because he refused to bow to him. And we know what happened is that God turned it around. God turned it around and we see Haman being uh, hung on the gallows instead of Mordecai. That's what he's talking about. Okay, let God arise in his anger. Let God arise in his anger. Okay, so there is God's anger. And we have to look at how we react to situations. So when Bible says be angry, we need to be very sure that our anger is legit. Like he examined himself, verses 3 to 5, is his own examination. That's yes. the first thing you have to do. There is this person who is pursuing me, who is after me, trying to do me harm. Have I given him any cause? Have I given me any cause? If I have done this, O oh Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me, or have plundered my enemy without cause. Says, if I have done any one of those things, then let it be so. He's right in what he's doing. But if I have not, he says, if I have done this, let my enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. But if I have not, then he says, O Lord, arise. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. And he says, God will arise in his anger. And then he says, you know, God is angry with the wicked every day. Every day. Okay? God is angry with the wicked every day. It's a righteous anger because God cannot be not angry at sin and wickedness. But the nature of God's anger, when we look at God's anger, we need to be sure that our anger fits in. Like I said, unless you know the truth, you cannot identify the false. You don't study the false. You study the truth because the truth is what shows whether my anger is true or not, whether it agrees with God. <laughs> Psalm 103 and verse 8. And then Nehemiah 9.17. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. So one thing we need to realize, God doesn't lose it like that. He's not short-tempered. God is not sharp. God is slow to anger. So when God says be angry, or when we are angry, we should not be short-tempered. Our anger should be slow. Mm. Because God is slow in angry. And how we see why? Because his primary nature is he's merciful and gracious and is abounding in mercy. That is his actual nature. But he hates wickedness. So he's angry wicked with the wicked every day. But if you look at his judgments that come upon them, okay, he's very slow. Like it took 10 plagues and the Pharaoh had to come after God's people before God would lift his hand to destroy them. Oh. Okay. Mm. And even though every thought and inclination in the heart and mind was evil and the earth was filled with violence, he waited 120 years before his wrath was released. 
Though he was angry every day, he does not respond in his anger every day. He's angry because what is he waiting? In his mercy, in his grace, you know, what is waiting? He's waiting for the wicked to turn. Okay. But when the wicked does not turn, like if Pharaoh had not gone against uh, Israel, he would have survived. His army would have survived. But God waited till then. God waited till then. Nehemiah 9 and verse 17. Okay. 9 17. They refused to obey and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. They hardened their necks and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness and did not forsake them. Now he's talking about Israel. He's not talking about the Gentiles. He's talking who went against Israel. He's talking about Israel. Mm. Ten times they rebelled against God in the desert. The tenth time, you know what happened? In spite of everything they saw, the Bible says in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. And that leader was Korah. Korah was appointed to take them back to Moses or to back to Israel. But you know what? You are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Yes, that's a most in, incredible. Like if we would find it very difficult to deal the way God dealt with people like that. You've been rejected. We don't care what you did. We're going to pick another leader. We're going to go back. And you know, God said, you are not going back. Because if you go back, I know what will happen to you. Second, the leadership was destroyed. But the fact is, for the next 38 years, God still took care of them. Next 38 mm. years, God took care of them. God took care of them. He never abandoned them. He fed them every morning. He gave water from the rock. His protection was there. The enemies did not overpower them. Balaam could not curse them. They couldn't do anything to them. God did not. Why? Because he's gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. But in his anger, he swore. But in his, Hebrew says, in his anger, Hebrews chapter 3, yeah, you will not enter into my rest. Okay, Hebrews uh, 3.17, yeah, 4 and, yeah, just let's have it. Got it? 3.18. 3, yeah, 3.18. Yeah, 17 and 18. For 17 and 18. 11, 17 and 18. We'll go back to 11 also. Now, with whom was he angry 40 years? Wow, okay. He was angry with them for 40 years. Why? Because they never repented. God was gracious. They never changed their ways. And he was angry with them 40 years. And, and, uh, uh, what did he say if you look at verse 11? Verse 11. Verse 11. Okay. 11 and 18 it says, So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. So if God is angry with the wicked, he will destroy them ultimately. If God is angry with his people, what does he do? He gives them no rest. And if you notice, God's people are restless. Mm. They have no rest. Many of God's people have no rest. It's simply because God is angry with them. <laughs> he won't destroy them. Hmm. He'll feed them. <laughs> He'll take care of them. But one thing they will not get, they will not get rest. Because rest. rest is a promise 
to people with whom God is not angry. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon yourself, learn of me, I am meek and lowly, I will give you rest for your souls. But we don't want to be meek, we don't want to learn of him, we go our own way, we are God's own children, God says, fine, I will not give you rest. Hmm. I will not give you rest. You know? And that's what happens when when God is, we have to look at that. We have to look at that anger part. In Psalm 30 and verse 5, these are all the same concepts, okay? For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life, okay? When you repent, when you truly, truly, like if you look at David, right, you know, for 16 months, he's made a real, real fool of himself in the Philistine territory. Jackass he made himself in the Philistine territory. He lost everything. Everybody turned against him. But when he, and of course, you need to realize, context, you look at it, God never changes. So God was angry with David for 16 months. That man had no rest. But when he repents, it was just like as if it was for a moment. Immediately God's anger is gone. Mm. And his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. His anger for those who genuinely, truly repent. No, repent. It, I mean, it's, if you, ha- you have, that's what Jesus said, no? You have to look at God as the father. Okay, one thing with father and children, you know, parents and children is that, you know, the the anger of the father or the mother will last only as long as the children don't repent. Once the children repent, it is forgotten immediately. immediately. They don't hold it. With others and all, neighbors and all this thing, but with children, it never happens. Never. It's immediately forgotten. Mm. They don't even think about it. It's immediately forgotten. And that's what God is talking about. He's dealing with, Israel has his children, the church has his children. His anger is but for a moment. But his favor is for life. Even when they are angry, they are still thinking about the child's future. So a whole lifetime they are going through. Everything they are thinking is this child, this child, my child, this is how it should be. Future they are thinking. So the anger is for a moment. So this is how we have to look at it. If you turn to First Kings chapter 8 and verse 46 with Solomon. Solomon understands this concept about God's anger, 46 to 50. Okay, First Kings chapter 8. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, <laughs> and you become angry with them, and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to the land of the enemy, far or near. Now he's talking about Israel. Okay, okay let's stay there for a minute. Um, 46, they're talking about Israel. But we need to look at context, New Testament. New Testament, if we are angry, China doesn't come and take the church in India and take them to China. Mm -hmm. They don't do that, okay? But what happens is God hands them over to the enemy. The enemy is the tormentors. First thing we lose is we lose our peace. We are restless. We have no peace. We are handed over to the tormentors. We live a life of because, see, again, the thing is that, how do I put across? Because sometimes it's very difficult to put across to people because once you have had a genuine salvation experience, that's what God tells the church of Ephesus. Remember the days in the beginning, your first love, 
and you're full of joy and love for God and peace and you're right with God, right with man, with peace with everybody. You had a blast. So you know what it is. Mm. You know what it is. You know what it is to have the joy of the Lord and the peace of God guarding your heart and your mind. And then slowly started drifting. We start sinning against God. And you were not very careful about returning, putting things right. You know what happens? God says, he waits, and then he gets angry. And when he gets angry, he delivers us to the tormentors. That's it, the, the illustration of that uh, servant. You know, that's, the master forgave him of a huge debt, but he took the other fellow and threw him in prison. And he says, in the same manner, God will release you into the hands of the tormentors. That's what he's talking about. Take them captive to the land of the enemy, far or near. It doesn't matter. You, I, I'm talking about situations, okay, where uh, you could be, let us put in a practical example, uh, spouses, husband and wife in the same house, or husband and wife separated, living 5,000 miles separated, but still torment. Could be far, could be near. It does not matter. They live their lives in anger and miserable and uh, every IBP, every disease is invited willingly, you know, voluntarily. All these things happen. They have no choice. The child who rebels against the parents and goes away, the same thing. Everywhere these things happen because these are God's laws. He's dealing in his anger. When you become angry with them and God becomes angry, what does he do? But it doesn't stop there. Let's go from 47 onwards. Hmm. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive. Remember the prodigal son? <laughs> when he came to his senses where he was, he was not carried. He, he was, voluntarily he went to the pigpen. <laughs> okay, he was taken captive by famine from his own stupidity. He reached there and when he came to their senses and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive saying, we have sinned and done wrong. We have committed wickedness. This is the ditto, the prodigal son's words. I have sinned against heaven and against my father and I shall go back. This when they do that, verse 47, 48. You know, and when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the how what does it mean to return to God with all their heart and all your soul? It's the return of the prodigal son, no conditions. That's because people don't understand when does real repentance take place when God changes your situation, is that you put no conditions. You put no conditions at all. He says, No conditions. I will come back as a hired servant. That's not how reconciliation takes place. Conditions are put. The guilty party puts conditions, <laughs> not the innocent party. <laughs> but so many conditions are put. And you know what happens? Things don't work out. It doesn't work out. Okay. And you cannot put conditions primarily before God. You just say, Lord, I am not, I am, it, it's like, it's like Saul saying, I have sinned against God, but this is my condition. You come with me. You come with me. Honor me before the people. Nobody has to know what has happened between God and me. Oh, yeah, he's taken the king, but nobody has to know. He's setting a condition for his repentance. Okay. But David doesn't put any condition except that don't take your Holy Spirit from me. 
Okay, he doesn't put any conditions. And that is where we have to be very, very careful. And often people say they have repented, but they haven't really repented because they set conditions. There is only partial repentance. It is if they return to you with all their heart, with all their soul in the land, then what will you do? Okay, and pray toward you. To the land to which you gave to their father, the city which you have chosen, the temple which I have built for your name, 4950. Then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication maintain their cause, 50. And forgive your people who have sinned against you, all their transgressions they have transgressed against you, and grant them compassion before those who took them captives, that they may have compassion on them. Okay. So when you look at it, he understands the concept about God. When God is angry, he will. You let you go. You'll go your way. But if he lets you go your way, you need to realize if God allows his child to have his way, it is captivity. Like parents will finally get angry, you know, keep on bugging his, okay, take it. But they don't realize. A little later they will come back crying. I'm sorry. What happened? Gave you your freedom. You wanted your freedom. You have your freedom. You want to have your freedom? You want to make your own choices? You don't want to listen to anything we say? Go ahead, make your choices. And you know what? That's what he does. They go into captivity. Mm. Okay. When they come back, they have to come back with all their heart. They cannot make conditions. Okay. Prodigals cannot make conditions. We are prodigals. We go back to God. We cannot make conditions. Okay. Mm. So in his anger, what does God do? He gives us the liberty to go our way, which is captivity. Okay, in Mark chapter 3 mm. and verse 5, you will see Jesus being angry. Okay, and when he looked around at them with anger, okay, grieved by the hardness of their hearts, okay, they have no compassion at all. Okay, these are people sitting plagued by sickness, but they're the law, they cannot heal on Sabbath. Hardened hearts. And the Bible says he looked around at them with anger. Okay, so you will see Jesus angry at the beginning of his ministry in the temple because the temple had been made into Canaan, right? A Canaanite business Merchant. place, merchant. Yeah. And then at the end of his ministry, he does the same thing. So we see God's anger. So is God angry now? Yes, he's angry. He's angry with the wicked every day. That doesn't change. But is he, is he pouring out his wrath? No. What he allows is allows to people to go their own way. It is the worst thing that can happen. Like think about it, no? Think about like now we have um, four little babies in our house. Okay. Now what if the parents allow they are throwing a tantrum over there, the parents allow all four to go their way. Do whatever you want. Now that is not love. <laughs> Within minutes all four will get into trouble. Because they don't know what to do. <laughs> They will fall somewhere. They will hurt something. They will eat what they should not eat. Some chaos will automatically happen. Why? Because the parents said, okay, you do what you want. And that's basically what it is. If God allows us to do what we want, everyone will go into captivity. Go into captivity. Okay, so God's anger, what he does in his anger, we have to be, because we have to understand one, God is angry, and he's angry with the wicked every day. But does his, is his wrath poured out in one day? No, it is not. He's gracious, okay, he's long-suffering. Why? Because he does not want anybody to 
in anybody to perish. Mm. But the unrepentant, let's look at what will happen. One day, the wrath of God will be poured upon. And Isaiah puts it beautifully. Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9. 9, 11, 13. But we can read the whole portion if you want. Isaiah 13. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, <laughs> to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. Okay. Yeah. Can yeah. Can go to verse eleven if you have it. Yeah. Okay. It will be so terrible that day. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for the iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud, and I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. And verse thirteen. Therefore, I will shake the heavens. And the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of the hosts in the day of his fierce anger. So that day is coming. The day is coming. It's getting closer and closer. It is not that he will withhold his anger forever. One day anger will be poured out on the wicked. And then if you go to Isaiah 66 and verse 15 to 17. 66, hmm. 15 to 17. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Okay, so these pictures are given over there. His pictures are given over there, meaning nobody will escape. Hmm. Even though we think, oh, these people are just getting away with it. Nobody is getting away with anything. Nobody will ultimately get away with anything unless we repent and we turn back. The anger of God will flow. And if you turn with me to Micah, in chapter 5 and verse 15. I will execute vengeance in anger and fury on the nations that have not heard. Okay, who did not hear, listen to her, hear means listen, hasn't listened to his cry. He will execute vengeance. So, we have to be very careful when you can be angry. But God says, in your anger, one of the things which we have to be very careful is that we don't take vengeance. There's one thing about that is the main part of sin. Vengeance belongs to God. Mm -hmm. Okay, vengeance belongs to God. In vengeance, the simple term is that we use is that we give back nicely. That is vengeance. That is vengeance. That is when anger becomes sin. Okay? That's a common term used in English. I gave nicely. Mm. Okay? You know what that was? You took the place of God. You took the place of God. God says vengeance belongs to God. Mm -hmm. Okay? This is where we have to be, be careful. Mm. So, what do we want when we are angry with people who are wicked? What do we want? The two things we want. One, we believe, pray they repent. Because if they repent, that's the best, best case scenario. They repent, turn, like Saul of Tarsus becomes Apostle Paul. Wow. What a transformation. From a curse, the person becomes a blessing. Okay, not neutral, becomes a blessing. The second is that that person does not change. Lord, move them out of the way. 
move them out of the way. We pray, Lord, if they don't repent, move them out of the way. What you do, life and death is not in my hands, it's in your hands. But the wicked will will perish. Move them out of the way, Lord. Change dispensation because prayer has the power to change. To change. Prayer has the power to make people. In the Bible, you will see through prayer, they either they stayed the hand of the wicked or they got God moved and removed the wicked out of the way. That's what they do. Because but vengeance is what we have to be very, very careful. And look another another part of God's anger. Luke fourteen and verse twenty one. It's a parable. A parable. So the servant came and reported these things to his master, then the master of the house being angry. Why is he angry? Because they rejected the call of salvation. Over and over the call is going, repent, repent, come, repent, come, repent, believe, repent, come. But when consistently people refuse that call, the Bible says, God, the master, was very angry. Because you know when, you need to look at it this way. God doesn't have to do this. Mm. One, God doesn't need, doesn't need you and me. Mm. God doesn't have to save us. God doesn't have to go to this extent for his righteousness sake of sending his son to die to save us. He doesn't have to do any of these things, but that's what he did. And then in spite of it, all that we reject his 101 invitations, repent and come, repent. Not just get saved, come to the banquet, be part of God's kingdom. You know what the Bible says? God was very angry. God gets angry. So when when does God get angry? Okay. So we need to realize. Okay. So when do we get? When do when like as if as a parent? When do we get angry with a child? Constantly saying, "Change your behavior. Change your behavior. Change your behavior. Change your behavior." Okay. And you don't change your behavior, then you have to be angry. Have to be angry. You have to be angry. What did he say? Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the maimed, and the lame, and the blind. What is he saying? You know what he's saying? The kind of stuff which I say. There's no point in investing in you. Better invest in somebody who will bring in the returns. He says, I waited with the Jewish nation for so many years. You're not interested. Prophet after prophet after prophet. You kill them all. Okay? I'll get a remnant from the Gentiles. I'll get a remnant from the Gentiles. Now God is angry. Because God has been investing in these people mm. to the lives of his servants who were sent. So much has been invested in. And there is no returns. And they are not even interested. They are not interested in the things of God at all. And what does God say? God is very angry. Very angry. Okay? So we need to look at those things and see. Is my response connected with the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's my response connected with something else. If you go to Hebrews chapter 10, very powerful verses, 26 and 27. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries of God. And it says it's a terrible thing to fall in the hands of God. Right? For our God is a consuming fire. Okay? So the anger of God is there both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
But false theology has made F. God is now no longer angry at all. God has changed. He's, he's become like Santa Claus. Okay, he's, but that's not what God is. God is angry with the wicked every day. God is angry with the wicked every day. And final to this question, I want to look at is John chapter 14, verse 15 and 16. 14, 15 and 16. If you love me, keep my commands. I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The word helper is also translated with the word comforter. Mm. Okay. Now the thing is this. What is the greatest blessing of a child of God? Whatever he or she goes through, he or she has the living comforter in them. Therefore, in your trouble, in your struggles, you are not alone. You have somebody to comfort you. The wicked have no comfort. They may have everything in the world, but they are tormented day and night in their personal lives. They have no comfort. Hmm. That itself is judgment. They are literally tormented. They live in torment. And that's why they finally, they have to go like the, the actress who died of overdose in Goa, right? So it's a big case now. No, she's from Haryana, if I'm right. If you look at all, what did these people didn't have? Paul, Paul Gart or something like that, her name. I didn't even know who she was. Her husband had died eight years ago. Okay, you look at these movie stars and rich people and all of them. You know what? Tormented. Tormented. That's why they drink so much. That's why they are on substance abuse. That's why they are on drugs all the time. Why are they? Because to escape their torment. Why? They will not have comfort. They will not have comfort. Okay. Almost every addiction, every addiction is to close that empty space because you have no comfort. Addictions as a result, because when you have the Spirit of God abiding with you, yeah. because God is not angry with you, because you are pleasing God and the Spirit of God is with you, you have comfort. You don't need addictions. You don't need anything. Basically, what I, what is an addiction? Addiction is something that you indulge in to kill time. Wow. Well, time is the bl greatest yeah. blessing. But you just want that day to be over. Because you can't handle it. Because you cannot handle time. Yeah. Why? Because God is angry and he has withheld his comfort from you. But to his children, he says, if you love me, you keep my commands, you know who you will have? You will have my comfort. I come. You may go through the fire. You may go through it all. But you will know that you are comforted through it all. You are comforted through it all. So, when you are dealing with anger, this is how you deal with anger. Okay, Be angry, Bible says, but do not sin. How do you sin? You first, you want exact vengeance. You want vengeance. Okay, You want revenge. We don't want revenge. We want justice. The distant difference between justice and revenge. All we want is justice. And as far as possible, what do you want to show the offender? Lord, I just want justice. And show mercy. It's not in my hands he should be punished. No, that's not my job. That's your job. I just want justice for my sake. Okay. David will say, well, you anointed me. All I want is this man to leave me alone. That's all I want. At your appointed time, you will give me the throne. Mm. I didn't ask for the throne. Yes. I didn't demand the throne. Yes. It is not my right. 
You anointed me when the time come. All I am asking is, will this man just leave me alone to live my life? Okay. We are not asking for vengeance. We are asking for justice. Okay. In your particular context, what is justice? What is justice? A thief steals. What is justice? What do you want? I just want my money back. And I want him to say, no, that's a judge's job. That's not your job. I want him 10 years in prison. No, that's not mine. That's not mine. That's not, that's not mine. Mine is, I just want my money back. And let the Lord deal with it. That's not my job. That's not my job. So you have to look at in that context, okay? Context. How do you deal with your anger? Because you have to deal with primarily when you see the wickedness, all this wickedness happening is that you have to vent your anger in your prayer closet. Because you have to look at the, like, you know, uh, let us say you have cancer, whatever stage cancer. Now, uh, you're going through chemo. Okay, say you're going through chemo. Or let's not chemo, let's say you're going through radiation. Now, when you're going through radiation, is uh, you have fever, you have other symptoms and all. But what is the radiation targeting? The only the cancer cells. It's not targeting anything else. It's only targeting the cancer cells because that is the cause of your problem. So the simple thing is that what or who is the cause of all the trouble? The devil. And God says, focus your anger on the enemy. I have given you your protection, the full armor of God, and I have given you weapons, and you are fighting powers of darkness because once you fight, there are two things that will happen when you actually fight the powers of darkness. Either there will be a release of the people who have been taken captive to do the will of God, or to the will of the devil, their release will take place, or those who have joined their souls with the demons will die. Hmm. One of these two will take place. Either there will be a release or those who don't want to be released, who have gone into the enemy's camp, sold themselves over, they will die. But you are not responsible. You are only attacking the cause. You are only attacking the cause. This is how you deal with anger. You, you you, You have to deal with your anger so that you don't sin against the person. Don't sin against the person. But first, you deal with your anger in your prayer closet. Make your prayer closet. That's what, I believe that's what Jesus is yeah. doing. He's, every morning, his prayer, there's a prayer to his Father to guard his heart from sinning. But there is also a prayer, I believe, where he pours out his soul at the anger of what the devil has done to his father's children. Therefore, when he comes out, when he looks at the people, what he has is compassion. But he's angry with those others who have joined with the devil. He's not angry with the people. You know, even if a woman is caught in adultery, he's not, he's not angry with her. But the religious class who have joined with the devil to hold these people in suppression, oppression, he's angry with them. He's angry with them because they will not lift one finger to help them. We can make life so difficult for them. And that's with whom he is angry with. So we have to look at, we have to be very, very careful whom we channelize our anger with. Okay. The whole people rebelled against Moses, but God didn't open the earth and swallow them up. He just took 250 of their leaders out. Because they were the cause for all this. They were the leadership. 
They were the cause. So what did God do? Took the leadership out. They left the people. But he was angry with them for 40 years. His anger with the leadership, that, that leadership of Israel and the anger with the people were different. With the leadership, they had a living hell. They went into hell, literally. But the people did not have rest for 40 years. <coughs> so how God deals also, we have to be very, very careful and we need to look at it very objectively. That's why the word of God, I said, don't look at the false thing. Look at the truth. How is God angry? Is God angry? Yes. Why is he angry? How is he angry? How long is he angry? You look at all that and say, Lord, you know what? I better be careful that if I'm angry, let me be angry like you. For the right reason, for the right cause. You know what? And then when you have been angry and you have done what you have to do, you don't have to feel guilty. You don't have to be guilty. Mm. Because otherwise the devil will try to put you on a guilt trip. Yes. Like you don't have to be guilty. You have to be absolutely clear. This is the reason I'm angry. I'm not looking for vengeance. I was merciful. My anger was lo my long suffering. Gave the person so much time, um, extra time, and extra more extra time. But now the time has come to make a decision, and I'm making a decision. And when I'm making a decision, I'm not angry. Not angry at all. I'm making a decision with a cool head. I made my decision. That's it. that is it. You know, that's why the Bible says the wrath or the anger of man does not bring the righteousness of God. So when you're actually making the decision, it should not be made when you're angry. Only God can make a decision when he is angry. We cannot make a decision when we are angry. Anger is there. We're looking at the sin, we are angry. We give it time, we give it time. But when the decision is made, it is made very cool rational, looked at all it, made our decision. Once you have made your decision, there's no changing. You'll only change if the other person truly with all their heart repent and turn back. Like the prodigal son. That's how you deal with it. Yes, Pastor Vijay, it was an important topic. Superb. So, Pastor, before we go to another very important question, there's another yeah. question which is uh, talking about the opposite side. We have the Anger of God and there is love of Christ. Oh. Uh, this is question number four. Mm. Hello, Pastor. What is love of Christ? How to get love of Christ and how can we make sure that the love of Christ is four, in our heart? Four, yeah. Question number four. The love of Christ is the love of God. I mean, I don't want to get into Greek, mm. but there are four kinds of love and we need all these four. Okay, there are four kinds of love. There is uh, the storge. Storge is the first one. Number then philia is philia there. Then eros is there, and then agape is there. Okay, that's the one. That's how um, there is this. Uh, there is this love between friendship. Philia. Philia. Then there is this love in basically what father is called child. father and storge. child. Storge. Then there is what is a physical intimacy between a husband and a wife. Okay, and then there is the love of God, which is agape. Mm. And the love of God, you cannot have it unless you are born again. Be very clear about it. Cannot have it unless you are born again. And if you are born again, you have it. But you have to learn how to manifest it. Mm. You have it because the very Spirit of God has come to live within you. Yes. And if the Spirit of God is there, you have agape. And when the Bible talks about agape, it is basically what you call a sacrificial love. It's always about the other. It's not about it. For God so loved the world. doesn't stop there. He gave his only son. Okay. So now what is he looking? He's looking at the world, the people he loved, and he needs, he is looking at, says, 
what can I do to save them? And you realize the only way he can save them is that he gives his son as a price for their salvation. Mm. That is agape. In real agape, in any situation, you will always look at it and say, what can I do to redeem the situation? What is that I can do to redeem the situation? Agape always works. It is not focused on self. It is focused on the redemption of the other person. What can I do? What can I do? It is not an emotional thing. Though there are emotions in it, it is primarily not an emotional thing at all because you cannot trust your emotions. Yes. Because now you may feel very good. Tomorrow morning you mm. may not feel the same thing. But agape is not factored by emotions. Agape is consistent. Consistent. And we need that. And that agape comes in, the Spirit of God will empower it. It will empower it. And most of the things that we see is either storge or philia or it is eros. Eros can be mostly called, also is called lust. lust. The, the, the demonic side of eros is lust. It is lust. When it is there, they will do anything. And when it is not there, they won't do anything. But agape doesn't work like that. Mm. God loves us consistently. His children, before they became their children, he loved them. Mm. After they became their children, he loves them and he will love them consistently. And for God is forever giving. Forever giving. The nature of agape, which how it differs from everything else, is that agape is forever giving. In Eros, there is giving and taking. In Storge, there is giving and taking. In Philia, there is giving and taking. But in Agape, it's primarily only giving. Hmm. It is giving. Because it does not matter to it whether it is whether it receives or not. It still gives. In Eros, what happens is uh, you, do, you don't just give. Eros is more you take. In Storge, with parents or children, also you give. But if you don't receive, you will still be upset. This is a loving child. That is not a loving child. Why can't you be loving like that? Okay, Friendship also the same thing. Okay, The Bible will say, Proverbs will say, if I'm right, anyone who wants to be have friends should, have be friendly should be friendly themselves. Okay, So everywhere there is a giving and taking in the first three, but not in Agape. That's what the Bible says. When we were yet sinners, when we were powerless, when we were enemies of God, God came and died for us. That's agape. We had nothing to give. Okay, we had even on the cross, nobody's giving him anything, but he's still showing that agape love, where he says, "Father, forgive them." So that see, it's only agape that will save a life, save a home, save a nation. Mm. Only agape will. You go out with the love of God. Only that can keep you going, keep in. How do you save a relationship? Simple. Agape. Storge cannot save a relationship mm. because you need two hands. Okay. Eros cannot save. It will destroy. Okay. Philia cannot. Okay. There is brotherly kindness. But what if your brother is not kind? Mm. You are in the church. Then only Agape can, can still, uh, still keep you going on. Keep you going on. Only agape can. Okay, that is where there is a laying down. If you go to one John three sixteen, okay, one John three sixteen brings agape to the church or to the human level. John three sixteen is 
agape from God. But this is, by this we know love. Simple. By this we know love. God's love. How? Because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Okay, now let me tell you. This is a simple thing. This world has been fashioned by the devil in such a way that we are always looking for gain and worried about loss. Because you are caught in time. Caught in time. Everybody panics. I did not pass one more extra year. I will not. One year is over. Five lakh people will graduate. Then what happens? I'm more and down, 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 down the ladder. I'm coming. So with job, with studies, with marriage, everything, time is a factor. So everybody is trying to push and grab, push and grab, which is like standing in a railway queue. Pushing, 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 pushing everybody because this is what. But if you don't look at eternity, you don't look at it. Eternity is one, there is no time. Mm. There is no time. Second, you don't have to push. Mm. You don't mm. have to push. Okay. Third thing, if you keep your eyes on eternity and do what God tells you to do, there's no way you can lose. Yes. You cannot lose. Even if you lose here, it is what you gain on that other side is no comparison yeah. at all. Mm. Okay. You can't do what one John three sixteen is talking about unless you keep your eyes on eternity. Look at verse 16. Okay, the same thing. By this we know love. How do we know love? Because he laid down his life for us. Question. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Hebrews 12 and verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Why did he endure the cross? Why did he lay down his life? Because there was something he could see on the other side. If he hadn't seen the other side, he would not have endured the cross. He would not have endured the cross. There was something on the other side he could see. Okay, And that is eternal, God is saying. The Father is saying, you go through the cross, you're going to get a set of people who will be with us forever and ever. Sin cannot touch them. They would have come through the penalty, the power, the presence, and they will be your brothers and sisters. And I as a father will have a much, much larger family. He looked at that and he said, it is good. Yeah. Mm. He endured the cross. So you cannot lay down your life unless you see, the, unless you see on the other side mm. eternity. If you don't see eternity, if you look at it temporarily, that's why all this religious good acts does not work. Most of religious good works is connected with self. Mm. It is not to do with the other because it's a karmic kind of a theory which is there in every religion. If I do this, if I do this, I will add my, like people go to college and join for NCC. For what? You will get extra points. Mm. NSS, NCC, all these things people join. Are they interested in joining the army? Mm. No. Mm. That B certificate or C certificate or what will give them a job. (laughs) So they are not interested. Motive is completely selfish. Mm -hmm. They are not out there to serve the government. And then, then there is war and you are suddenly called NCCC certificates all come join for army. They are saying, I never signed up for this. Why? Because that was not a motive. They are looking now desperately for all who are shooting range who has gone, okay, you all come. No, I am not coming. I am not interested. But didn't you join the NCC? Didn't you join NCC? Why did you join NCC? You didn't, you didn't, (laughs) you joined NCC before to get a certificate. Okay. So that is the good works of religion. Okay. 
then there is more like a very altruistic kind of love which is there. But that will stop the minute the other person is nasty. <laughs> Finished. <laughs> I am not doing it anymore. He does not deserve it. But that is not agape. Agape is not looking for a certificate. Agape doesn't care if the other person is nasty. It continues to do what it is because it's empowered by both the love and the power of God because it sees something. Okay, he's nasty, he's nasty. But I still believe, I still believe he can be saved. I still have hope he or she will turn around. He or she will turn around. I'm not saying you need to take abuse. But like Samuel, will never stop praying. Never stop praying. Okay. Sometimes you have to separate because you don't have to take that abuse because it will mess you up. But what thing, one thing you don't do is that you don't stop contending for that person in your prayer closet because what do you see? Okay, I will your feelings is he I don't want to pray for him. He was very nasty or she was very nasty, but God says no, do it. Because you are, now you're enduring your personal cross because you see a joy that is set before you. You know what? Your enemy. What you see as an enemy could get saved and become your friend one day. So that's how it works. If he had not seen that, he wouldn't have laid down. Because it was pointless. Mm. I mean, you come and die on the cross and nobody's going to get saved. It's a pointless thing. It's a pointless. It's a meaningless thing. Mm. So you have to look into eternity always before you lay down your life. Otherwise, it's just religion. It will make you miserable. Miserable. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says... All the righteous people who live, if they're living under the sun, it's all vanity because ultimately what happens to the yeah. wicked will also happen to the righteous because they're not seeing it on the other side. On the other side. Okay, Pastor. Yes, Pastor. This is a very interesting question, a very important question, the last question for the day. We'll take three questions today. This is the last question for the day. Okay. okay. There have been several interpretations and versions of the story. This is talking about the story of David and Bathsheba. Uh, and one version holds both David and Bathsheba accountable, stating that Bathsheba should have refused and fled, etc. However, is this not the rule of those days that the common public should obey the king's order at any point in time? Though it's not explicitly detailed in the scriptures, when we reflect on Prophet Nathan's narration and confrontation of David in Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 3 to 4, but the poor man had only one little female lamb and that he had bought. He raised her. She grew up, grew up in his home with his children. She would eat his food and drink from his cup. She rested in his arms and was like a daughter. Now a visitor came to, to the rich man. The rich man thought it would be a pity to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler. So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared her for the traveler. In verse 3, we see the relationship of the poor man and the little female lamb. In verse 4, it states how the rich man mercilessly, selfishly took the poor man's lamb and prepared her for the traveler, which indicates abusing one's authority without showing any compassion. This is not Prophet Nathan's own version, but how God saw this and his body. I may sound like a feminist, but honestly, I wanted to know how God viewed it as he knew what was in both their hearts when this infamous adultery was executed by David. Sometimes this can happen within marriage, though it's not termed as adultery, but a rape. Please share, share your, your thoughts. Bathsheba, 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 and David. David and Bathsheba. It's a very, very good question. Because uh, first let's go to David. 
We go to Deuteronomy chapter 17. And if I'm right, verse 17. Yeah. The king has to have. Yeah. He should not multiply wives. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17, 17. Okay, this is the law for the kings of Israel. They are to be absolutely be different from the Gentile kings. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. This was the rule given to Israelite kings. And the Gentile kings were not like this. The Gentile kings multiplied everything. Everything. Harem after harem. And, you no. Know, so God is putting a picture of you here. One is that when I give you authority, when I give you power, God is telling his kings, you should not use it for personal satisfaction, yeah. accumulation of personal wealth or accumulation of wives for personal satisfaction. You would be abusing your power and your authority. Mm. Okay, the principle over there. That's a principle which God is putting out because the Gentile kings, remember, were not like that. They would take anybody's. Okay, remember when it comes to Sarah, both with the Pharaoh and with Abimelech, that was uh, the order of the day. Order of the day, and that was Abraham's fear. Looking at her beauty, the the king would take, and the kings would take. He went here, everywhere, all India, all the princely states, everywhere. That was the, the you couldn't do anything about it. They would take. Anybody's, I mean, but in both the Pharaoh and with uh, Abimelech, if you look at it, uh, and the second case, other Abimelech, which are basically titles. When you say, how can two Abimelechs be there My in the father's 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 is basically a title. Mm. So Isaac's case also. In all three cases, the Gentile king did not know these were married women. They did not know they were married women. So all of them will finally say, why didn't you tell mm. Why didn't you tell? So the Gentile kings in these three stories seems to have more moral scruples than David had. Hmm. David had. One, you will see, God will, God will write these things and give it to us. But he doesn't force our hand. Hmm. We are still exercising our free will to keep or to break. Mm -hmm. Okay, keep and break. And you will see in this case, uh, David is multiplying wives. He's multiplying wives. And what happens over there when he multiplies wives is that, in this case, this is another man's wife. And the thing is that the man is not even there. He's gone to war. He's gone to war. Okay. And we all know the context, okay? Now we, from that context, we learn so many lessons. The first lesson is, it is not possible for a man or a woman to be idle and not fall into sin. Mm. Okay? The idle mind is a devil's workshop mm. and idleness is what leads into it. If you find a man or a woman who is idle, doing nothing consistently, you can be absolutely sure they are in sin. Mm -hmm. because it, there is no way. Mm. That's why work was instituted by God, God. before the fall, mm. post-fall. Work is God's therapy. Okay, work. Okay. It's, it's, we need to work. We need to keep on working. Otherwise, we will fall. Idleness. No, idleness is terrible. And that's where this king falls. 
And now we, we look at the context about it, if you see about it, because we are not, we're going to look at, because this is a question that has been gone around with theologians for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Who is guilty? David or Bathsheba or both? Or is really Bathsheba guilty? Bible is not very clear about it, but let's look at it. Okay, here. We saw David there in chapter 11. He saw the woman was bathing. Verse 2. Okay, he slept till the whole day. He slept. Okay. Uh, this is uh, Second Samuel chapter 11. Second Samuel chapter 11. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. We have to read the context. Okay. It happened one evening that David arose from his bed. Okay, that's the first mistake. He slept till evening. Okay, now he's not doing, a, he's not working in an IT company where his shift is in the night. Okay, this is a man who is a king who didn't go to war. Okay, so he, what he did the whole day, why did he sleep the whole day, we do not know. Okay, he slept the whole day and evening he rose from his bed. And he walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. Okay, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So the woman is not far away; it's very close. They don't have telescopes or binoculars or anything. Okay, so it's a different time. So the woman cannot be very far away. The woman has to be pretty close, pretty close. Okay, so the house is not very far away. And he doesn't stop there. The Bible says, David sent and inquired about the woman. Now he's asking for more information. Because we're looking at David here. First, David has the law. What is the law? This is it. This is the law for the kings. Don't multiply wealth. Don't multiply wives. Don't use your power. Don't use your power. No? To, for personal gra gratification. Don't. That's what even here the Nizam of Hyderabad had. How many hundreds? I don't know. Um, he was once the world's richest man. He had a fleet of how many Royal uh, Rolls Royces? 120 or something like that. And I remember during the British Raj when he ordered for a one of the Nizams, they did not give it to him. Uh, I don't know, because he was Indian or whatever. And you know what? He bought a whole fleet of it and just left them to rust. Okay, because he was that rich. And the hair, some of the places where our people go to have their children in the hospital, where all his harems, those were the buildings where all his harems, because he had all. So everywhere this was the thing. They used their money for personal gratification and used everywhere. You look at the power structure that you are going around the world. You look at them. What are they using the power structure for? They're using it for personal gratification, a massing of wealth, massing of wealth, and then using it for personal gratification in terms, in this case, of women. And then the Bible says, uh, and they said, it is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, who's actually the son of uh, Ahitophel, the wife of, if I'm right, the wife of Uriah the yes. Hittite. Then David sent messengers. When king sends messengers, these are not counselors, these are soldiers. Okay, when king sends messengers means he sends his bodyguard. Okay, he sends his soldiers and they took her. That's it. Okay, the Bible says they took her. And that's what Nathan also says. You took the rich man took, took the poor man, took her and she came to him. And he lay with her. For she was cleansed for her impurity and she returned to her house. This is how the whole incident is mentioned over there. 
Okay. Now the whole thing is that when it, the Bible says he took her and she came to him. Okay, there's two constructions used there. He took her, so the king has taken her by force. They escorted her to him, and she came to him. Now we can give Bathsheba here full. She's innocent. At this point, we can absolutely say, because when the king summons somebody, you don't know what he's summoning you for. Right? The king wants you to come. So she probably quickly gets dressed, and she goes, okay, she's the king once, and you wouldn't even think about anything like that, because the king is David. He's no Gentile king. You don't have to fear for your life or anything. Your husband is in the army. He's fighting this battle. So she goes, so I will give here till, I mean, I would give Every point I will give Bathsheba the benefit of doubt. She came to him. And then there is, he lay with her. Okay, he lay with her. Okay. And now we don't know what happened over here. We are not sure what happened over there. But you can be almost be sure that it was rape. He took a forcible. Okay. And now, there is an interesting thing there which we, which we, which we, which we miss out, okay? We are supposed to be keepers of the law. Okay, Romans 8 will be fulfill the law. We are not legalists. Yeah. We can become legalists. Yes, yes. We can become legalists, okay? But we are not supposed to become legalists. Instead, we are supposed to be those who fulfill the law. The law says you shall not multiply wives. The law says you shall not take your neighbor's wife. This is what the law says. Okay. Now, you break the law, but you become legalistic by keeping the minor part of the law which says when a woman is in impurity, you should not have relationship with her. Look at that. He lay with her, another man's wife, but she was cleansed of her impurity. This is where the pharisaical spirit comes out. It's like the the person who says, you know, I'm dieting and orders his cheeseburger with double layer and triple layer and everything and then has a diet cock at the end and feels good at least. Okay. That is David. You see, this can happen to anybody, even the man after God's own heart. He's not a law keeper. He becomes a legalistic over here. Okay. He breaks the major part of what God has said and keeping a small thing. Okay. Keeping a small thing. You have to look at it, how it is, how it goes over there. This is how it works in us. We have to be very, very careful because if you are under the law, you are under a curse. Mm. Okay, We are called to fulfill the law and not to be legalistic. It's very dangerous. We always have to walk this because how to be led by the Spirit and not to be by the law. Because this is what the law will do. You will break the major thing about the law and after that night is over, he can say, at least she was cleansed of her impurity. Okay, cleansed of impurity. I did not have relationship with her when she was having her periods. Feeling good, I kept the law. Okay, so if you look at it, this is how the enemy traps, how enemy traps, okay. So the question is over here. Okay, what happened to Bathsheba? What happened to Bathsheba? 
what happened to Bathsheba. Bible is absolutely silent about Bathsheba. If you if you know that the Bible does not say anything about Bathsheba, Bathsheba's reaction, Bathsheba's. We don't know anything about Bathsheba. But then we have to take the picture of Sarah. Okay, the picture of Sarah in the Pharaoh's home, and the picture of Sarah in Abimelech, Abimelech's home. Okay. And if you look at the context over there, Sarah does not seem to resist there. Right? She seems to be submitting to the will of God, will of her husband to be another man's concubine. Okay. And here, Bethsheba seems to be submitting to the will of the king. While we exalt Sarai, we castigate Bethsheba. Okay, if I am right in Genesis 20 and verse 13. Just look if it's the same chapter. Genesis 20. Yeah, 20 verse 13. uh, 1, 3, Genesis 20. Yeah, it came to pass when, now he's telling uh, Abimelech, cause me to wander from my father's house. I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me. In every place, wherever you go, say of me, he is my brother. So he's saying, you know, Sarah was very kind. Sarah in a kindness told everywhere that Abraham is my brother. And therefore, this man took me to their harems. Okay. He puts it across, even has kindness. Okay. Okay. Kindness. But nobody will say Bethsheba was kind when she went to David. Okay. Because you could put the same context. If I say no, the king can kill my husband. She said yes, and the king killed her husband. Okay, this is what kings do. If the ma- woman is married and they like, they'll get the husband killed. And then they take the woman. This is what the Dal kings did. Marriage did not make any issue for them. They just killed the husband and took the widow. Okay, so the thing is that she could be thinking, if I say no, husband's my husband's life is in danger, danger and he could get him killed and take me. But the fact is that she said yes. <laughs> And still the husband died. Okay, so you have to look at the picture from a woman's point of view, what is happening here. Okay, woman's point of view, what is happening here. So you have the picture of Abraham and Sarah. You have the picture of Esther. <laughs> Esther is literally hidden and then groomed by Mordecai to be a Gentile king's concubine. Of course, God used her to save his people. But you look at all these pictures and we have to be very gentle with Bethsheba. Very, very gentle with Bethsheba and not run into, run into conclusion. I was working on it, thinking about it. But I thought it was a nice, uh, nice uh, question. A very good question. Okay. Now, post that. Okay. In one of the messages which I preached, I remember I'm saying, how does a godly woman fall? Remember, I had said that, I think a couple of months back, okay? Because if you look at Uriah's reaction, you will also realize 
he is not very sentimentally or emotionally attached to his wife, which is where these things happen. Okay, because marriage is a place where there is a lot of emotions. Mm. That's a place of it's your, your home is a place of emotions. Emotion, the man yeah. shows great emotion to his wife. The wife shows great emotion. The parent shows great emotion. Sure. It is bound in emotions. And when there are not emotions involved, there is always place for the one who is thirsty, hungering for emotions to find it in another place. Okay, and in so many ways, Uriah is, I'm, I'm not justifying her action, but I'm saying Uriah seems to be a very, he seems to be just a career, career soldier. soldier. No emotions, no feelings, nothing over there. Okay, and if David hadn't called, Betcha would have remained faithful to him all her life, but it would have been a dead marriage. Okay, but because of who called her, who called her, because this is Israel's hero. Who called her? You know, it's like you know. I, I think I used that example where you make space in your mind. I will never cheat on my husband. I will never cheat on my wife. But if I were to, it would be a person like this. So you have, have you already have an idol in your head. You no, know, if it were you no, know, because you she probably. I'm not saying everybody like you no know, sang about David. Man after God's own man, the man who is so emotional about his emotional man about his God is so emotional. He has his feelings and he's passionate. This mm. thing, you know, this is basically what a woman looks from a man. Like she, she wants passion. Okay, she, she doesn't want compassion. Here, go show that to the beggar. I want passion. You show your compassion to your beggar. Okay, so she wants passion. Okay, and you don't see what happens. It's not, not ours, no? Not okay, so that is one side of the picture, but let's leave that as these are all presumption because these are all case studies of what happens in homes, which happens in marriages. The best of men and the best of women are at the end of day, Amen. they are just mere men. Amen. Now let's go to Corinthians. We'll come back there. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter Seven. Hmm. Verse one onwards. Okay. You see, we'll read from verse one. Concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it's good for a man not to touch her. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife. Let each woman have her own husband. Okay. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her. And likewise also the wife to her husband. So God puts across some the, the, the marriage with what the world calls it sex. God doesn't call it sex. He calls it affection. affection. Calls it affection. The wife does not have authority over her own body. The husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And look at words. Do not, do not deprive one another Except with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again so that, so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Wherever you read in the Bible, especially in the New Covenant, wherever you read in the Bible where Satan comes, be careful. Do not let your, do, um, be angry but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on anger and over. Oh, do don't not give space, give space to such anger. If you don't deal with anger, what will happen? 
Satan will get space. Mm. If you do not come together, especially when you are young, come together, married couple, when you don't come together, you know what happens. See, it is not the same for somebody who does not know what sex is. Mm. Okay, It is for somebody who knows what sex is. It's a place where you long for that affection. When you know that and when you don't do that, you're opening a doorway for the enemy. Enemy. Opening a doorway because the enemy will show. Did you see that one? That couple is very happy. That couple is very happy. You are the one who is not happy. You are the one who is not. It starts opening up the enemy. The enemy comes in over there. That's what I said about Uriah's situation with Bathsheba. Because the Bible is very clear. This is talking about, it's not talking to people who are bachelors or spinsters. It's talking to married people. And that is basically what also could be. And so, if she has a picture and of all glamour superstars, the superstar of Israel calls her. Okay, and he calls her. So, but why do I believe still, still it was rape and not what we call consensual sex? Why? It's simply because that's the way a woman's... She, she mourned for her husband. No, no, it's not just that. That's the way a woman's body works. Man can have sex with anything and anybody. Woman cannot. Cannot have a woman. I'm not talking about a prostitute. I'm talking about a woman. A woman cannot have sex with somebody she does not love. And if she has sex with somebody she does not love, it is not by consent. It is rape. That's exactly how man, God has designed a woman's body. Man, it's, it's a very visual creature. Man's body is not designed that way. Woman's body is designed that way. If she has to have sex with a man, you can be very sure she has to have emotions for that man. And the king cannot call you and suddenly you have all emotions and ready for sex. No. Simply, if you look at it, that's not the way it works. But that's not the way that works for man. David can have sex with a stranger too. And she's practically a stranger for him. For him. So you need to look at what is happening. And the second thing you have to look happening over there is this. If you okay, uh, come to chapter 12 itself and uh, verse 13 and 14. That's when he confesses. Eh? Nathan comes. Yeah, somebody's phone. Yeah. Hmm. Verse uh, 13 and 14. Yeah, Pastor. Uh, second Samuel, Pastor. Yeah. Second Samuel, bro. Second Samuel, chapter 12. Yeah, Second Samuel, chapter 12. Let's have verse 9 and 10. 9 also. Hmm. 9 onwards. 9 onwards, okay. 9. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Okay? Yeah. Let's have verse have 10. Yeah. Next verse. Next verse. Mm. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Okay. Now when God is talking about, there is a twofold judgment that comes upon David if you look at it. Okay, twofold. One, when the, when the word sword is used, you will see what happens is, uh, it basically means judgment. Yeah. There's twofold judgment that comes upon David and David's household. One judgment is a literal sword. His sons will kill each other. Okay? 
The second judgment that will happen is the women folk in his home will get raped. His daughter will get raped and ten of his concubines will get raped by his son. Okay. So by the judgment that comes, you can conclude logically what happened before was not consensual. Mm. It was rape. Because he murdered Uriah, his sons will murder each other. He raped Bathsheba. Tamar will get raped. Absalom will forcibly take ten of his father's concubines. This is how you put it together. You know, you want. I mean, when you when you when you have only so much evidence available within Scripture, then you have what what a lawyer does is you have to put the pieces of evidence together and build up your case from Scripture. You don't have to go outside Scripture. From Scripture, you have to look through it and say. What happened over here? In within the portions which is available, because about Bathsheba, you know what? Only chapter eleven and twelve is there. Literally, if we talk about the incident, it is not repeated in chronicles or anywhere. It's only over here. So within that picture, we have to look at it and say, you know what? You look at it. See, let me tell you this: the law, the law today. If you are an underage, let us say you are an underage boy, underage man, or an underage girl, if a mature woman has sex with an underage boy, or a under um, um, grown-up man has sex, sex with an underage girl, and it is consensual, it is called statutory rape. Mm. You getting it? Mm. A seventeen-year-old girl. Okay, we'll say, oh, she looks big, look a woman. She's only 17 years old. And she falls in love with us, the 30-year-old man. And they have sex. But when the law comes in, whatever she says is irrelevant. I love him and this thing is all irrelevant. The law says it is statutory rape because she's underage. She's underage. That's how the law will look at it. Statutory. Or like you keep hearing in U.S., this teacher who had sex with a boy. The boy went in knowingly, willingly. But the problem is he's underage. He may look like a giant, but he's only 16 years old. So when she said she goes into prison for 15 years because it's called statute rape with a minor. Okay, so you have to look at how these things are defined under the law. Okay, so you look at over here. Here is a woman. She's forcibly brought. They took her. The king brings. The Bible says he lay with her, and the only issue was that for David it was just a one night stand. But the problem is she became pregnant. That was the issue. She became pregnant. If she had not become pregnant, he would have just forgotten her. God was not going to allow him to get away with it. Mm. So you have all these things happening over here. Okay. So when you look at it, the judgment that comes, you're putting pieces together. Okay, pieces together, and it looks like he called her, he took her, and he took her by force took up by force. Okay. Now, the other side of the picture and we shall stop. Go to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Hmm? Got it? We'll read from 1 to 6. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Hmm. 
Beres begot Hezron and Hezron Ram. Ram begot Abinadab. Abinadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot boss by Rehab. So another mother is mentioned. First mother mentioned is Tamar. Second mother mentioned is Rehab. And Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Third mother mentioned is Ruth. And Obed begot Jesse. Jesse begot David the king. And David the king begot Solomon. Ah, that's all. Only six. Six, 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 six. You just ran away. Only need till six. Yeah. What happened? Just put six. Yeah. And Jesse begot David the king. And David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. The simple question is, why does God name Tamar, Ruth, and Rahab and refuse to name Bathsheba? Why didn't he name her? Tamar slept with the father-in-law. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute. Ruth was a Moabite. God said, for these many generations, they shall not enter. So he named them all. Why didn't he name Bathsheba? Because there was something about Bathsheba also what was part of what happened. There was something of consensual that took place. Otherwise, her name would have been written. That's my, I'm putting all the pieces of evidence together and I'm saying, major part of the fault likes okay, with David. David. But there was something in Bathsheba also there where she also didn't resist too much. Because one thing she could have was, she could have appealed to his righteousness. Like Abigail did. Like, uh, no, no, not like Abigail did. Like Tamar did. Uh, yeah, Tamar. Yeah. Similar situation. Tamar did. Said, it's not right, my brother. Ask our father. We are He will allow us to get married. Don't do this. Don't do this. Yes, she yeah. could have said it. And this is not Absalom. This is David. She could have said what Abigail also said. You are anointed to be king. You do. Why do you want to get blood on your hands? You could have said you are king. David, you are God's king. You can't do this. It's not right. I believe, so there is fault on David's side. The major, I would say, 90, let us give him 99. But there is one person with Bathsheba too. Because when I look at this, I ask, why is Bathsheba's name not there? Pastor, one of the clarities I wanted to also uh, ask you to comment on. Louder, yeah. One of the one of the things that I wanted you to comment on as well is that when it happens in the context of a marriage, mm. uh, you mentioned about Second Corinthians, uh, First Chronicles, uh, Second Corinthians Seven, yeah. Uh, you talked about mm. uh, for a woman, mm. uh, if she's not emotionally involved uh, in any relationship, mm. the sex is as good as rape. Mm. Uh, so, in the context of a marriage, mm. when does <laughs> the act of being physically involved mm. with your wife mm. borderline on rape, mm. and when and when it is not? How do you how do you look at it? See, the whole thing is that no, this is the whole thing. Uh, you cannot take emotions out of a marriage. It's emotionless, so emotionless sex is like rape. Ah, okay. It's it's like rape. Mm. Like if a man were to go to a prostitute, his emotions are not in there. It's just sex, and the woman feels like a prostitute. Feels okay. like a prostitute because there is no like when we counsel people, we tell them mm. the act of sex may take place at night, but it begins in, in the morning. morning. The way you converse with each other, the affection is always there, yeah. sentiments are always there, and can be even with them. I mean, some men will say, Oh, that woman is frigid, there's no feelings at all. 
Everyone will say that man is like a brute, he's like an animal. Only time when he wants to solve is when he comes to bed. But these are issues because there are no affections there. And mm. affections can be either. The simple question is, we can understand it in primary in arranged marriages. We can understand the get to know. But now today, because most marriages seems to be love marriages, the simple question is, was it there in the beginning? Mm. If it was there in the beginning, because it has to be there in the beginning, if it's a love marriage, if emotions I'm talking yeah, about, yeah. how did you lose it? Why did you lose it? Mm, mm. That is what God is telling the Ephesus church. What happened to you? you I mean, he said, you are mechanically co- trying to come to me every day and have a relationship with me. He says, he says I am not frigid. Mm. Basically using the language, I am not yeah, that. Absolutely. He's basically saying, I am not. Where is your first love? Mm. Where is your emotions? Okay, because that's the way it should be. It gets better and better and better. It's not. I'm not talking about the sex part. I'm talking about the emotions part, part, the relation. There's more understanding. There's more affection. There's more depth in the relationship. You know each other. But what happened? One of the ways it happens is it can happen with either man or woman. One or both. They get too busy. Mm. There's something on which relationships are built, either with God or man. It is time. You take time out, you can't build a relationship. You cannot just six days walk, like today is a six day, walk through the week, spend no time with God, and Sunday you cannot. You cannot. cannot do it. Same thing, you can't do it with your wife too, mm-hmm. or your husband too, or with your children too. You cannot. You can't, because this is the fundamental family the husband, the wife, the children, God at the top. These are the most important people in your life your God, your spouse, your children. You want a relationship on them first. There is time. Second, there is truth. You cannot build relationship on falsehood. It will not last. It will fall apart. There has to be truth. Mm. There has to be truth. And you have to be. That's the most painful. The truth is like the surgeon's probing scalpel. It probes. And you have to. So when it is probed, David says, I have sinned. I have sinned. And if you look at Psalm 51, he will never appropriate blame on anybody. He says, I have sinned. My sin is always before you. He takes personal responsibility for the whole thing. He doesn't mention anybody, circumstances, situations, enticement, temptation, not even the devil. Mm. He doesn't mention anybody. Psalm 51 is just between him and his God. He says, you are right. I am wrong. I am responsible for all this. Therefore, God was able to restore him. So in relationship, it happens. And you know, because this is a constant thing you hear in the media and like marital rape has said, I think it's come into the law and all. And you need to realize. And the one who goes through it almost, you need to realize is the the weaker vessel. It's the woman who goes through this. It is not the man. The woman who feels used, the woman who feels neglected, in most cases, it's always the woman. Okay, it's always the woman because that's the way God created. Okay, and it has to be seen in the family context, and because God is a family man, because there's no sex in heaven. There's no sex in heaven. There's no physical that kind of body in heaven. But it has been given on earth so that we understand relationships. We understand relationship, and that's why the Bible says, "Do not deprive each other." Do not deprive each other because you know what? Once you are married, and especially we say, you know, in the first years of your marriage, when you are young, 
should come together as often as possible. You deprive each other only for spiritual reasons. That's what the Bible says. Spiritual, for fasting, and no other reason. Why? It brings that intimacy into your mind. Because the, 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 see, the, if you take a, like say, three-story building or a four-story building or a five-story building, you see the pillar goes up. But have you noticed the pillar, the higher it goes, it becomes smaller? Mm. The size of the pillar down and the size of the pillar at the fifth, it's not the same. Yes. Not the same. The pillar becomes, it, it, it doesn't need narrow. Why? Mm. Why is it this thing? Because the pillar of the first floor is the foundation pillar. Exactly. Okay. So the first, second, three, four, those years of a marriage are the foundation of your marriage. And God says, you know, you really want to get intimate? Come together. Keep coming together because you will not have any ill will in you. You will not have misunderstanding. Yes. Keep coming together. Keep coming together. Keep talking. Be intimate. Be affectionate. Resolve all your issues and keep coming together in the marital context. And you say, you know what? You will have a very strong marriage. Very strong marriage. And whenever misunderstandings or distance happen, you know what? The first thing that stops in a marriage? Sex stops in a marriage. Mm -hmm. Stops in a marriage. But the first thing that stops in a marriage, or if it happens, the man is taking it by force. And the woman is not interested at all. And that's what happens. And God has put it there as a as an example to us or as a as a as what parable. You call, as a parable uh, to us. This is how marriages are built and our relationship with him. Mm. Yes, Pastor Vijay, it's eight o'clock. And we shall call it a die. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. <laughs> call it a die. <laughs> Okay, mm. Australians are sleeping, mm -hmm. but we shall call it a die. Let's pray. Pastor Vijay, would you close it? Father, we just want to thank you, Father, for your goodness and your mercy and your kindness. Thank you, Lord, for so many truths that you have hidden in your word, Father, even as we, Lord, as your word says, the unfolding of your word brings light. And we want to thank you, Father, for the light that you have shown through all these questions that your children had from different parts of the globe. And I pray, Father, that even as we Lord, receive this light. We pray, Father, that, Lord, we will cleanse ourselves and we will walk in the light and the blood of Jesus will continue to cleanse us, that our fellowship with you and with one another will be restored and will be brought to a newer level, O oh Lord. To that end, I pray that you would bless this time of meditation and Q&A, and, Lord, that, Lord, the seeds that have been sown in our hearts, O oh Lord, the Word of God will bear fruit even a hundredfold in our lives. Thank you once again for this day. And even as we prepare ourselves for tomorrow, Father, if you tarry to come and to choose to give us yet another day in the land of the living, I pray, Father, that, Lord, we will all be prepared, O Lord. And we will, Lord, come into your presence with thanksgiving in our hearts. Prepare us, O Lord, through this night and even, Lord, through the night, O Lord, and uh, enable us to be found in your house on time. We thank you. We praise you. We give you glory for in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.